0: Good morning, everyone. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. Uh, She is sort of an adopted uh, evergreen person. And she came by way of uh, a whirlwind love affair with Don Wong. So tell us your story. We're so thankful that you are here with us. This is Becky
1: Wong, everyone. Good morning. (laughs) Ohayou gozaimasu. Ahava. That's a biblical Hebrew for I give you love or just love. I'm Becky Wong, Don's wife, and I'd like to share a snapshot of my walk with the Lord. Attending church every Sunday, I always thought of myself as a Christian. I was baptized, book learned, confirmed, and married in the church. It happened 33 years ago. The D word, a word that was not allowed in our family, that entered in when I divorced my former husband. Something I had to do to save myself and my daughter. I didn't want to wish it on anyone, even my worst enemy. I felt so numb and loveless, like a failure in life, and totally hopeless. Cognitively, I knew I had forgiven him and tried to forget all that occurred. It's not good to hold on to bitterness. Just let it go. It's freeing. This is truly when Christ came into my heart and my whole life. I began attending church again, and many family and friends were supportive, which is what Janelle and I needed at that time. Truly God's angels of mercy. I immersed myself in my nine-year-old daughter's life and my work as a teacher. That was another blessing. Trying to earn a living to raise her. Looking at her photos of our life together revealed the emotional strain she was experiencing. Even if people say that children are resilient, it hurts through and through. My parents and, and friends kindly tried to introduce me to other fellows but it made me feel more like a prostitute than encouraging finally i put a stop to all of that and decided i needed time with the lord janelle my family and friends and just began focusing on that and nothing else the st- scripture that got me through this roller coaster of life was john 16:33 king james version these things i have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome this world. God and his son, Jesus Christ, really became a part of my life, and I grew intimately, relationally, passionately, and dependently in love. Ahava. I joined the singles ministry attending First Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church of Honolulu, and Pastor Gary Van Brocklin and his wife Marlene walked alongside me through studying scripture, life as a single mom, and growing my faith. We would have Bible study in my home, devotionals daily, studying God's word, and singing in the choir. Living life in the light of his love, time with our Lord became a priority and still is. In 2010, I traveled to Israel, which was the icing on the cake, spending time as a short-term missionary for three years in Thailand, Kenya, and Peru, facing life's challenges with a positive biblical attitude, and now relocating in Washington on November twenty-third, 2015. Sometimes when I look back on a rough situation, I realize our Lord was right there with me feeling his presence when I'm afraid driving around in Washington just melts away that fear God and his son Jesus Christ are the light and the way of life of good cheer joy fills me up when I think of God's providence that brought me here where I'm standing right now I met Don in a whirlwind courtship almost three years ago And have enjoyed and loved it all. Ahava and aloha. Thank you for letting me share my story with you. This morning, our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 in the New American Standard Version. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord.
0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And I'm going to uh, deviate from our series and uh, join in with uh, Elise and others in this season of Lent. And I want to preach on the same passage that she uh, had us confess through. Um, I I felt a little bit of resistance in the first service when I had to say my part. You know, I had to kind of go... Really? Am am I failing that badly? And then as I thought about it between services, uh, the second time around, I was able to confess from my heart. Yeah, all those confessions that I admitted to, they're true. And so uh, in that same vein, I want to just warn you that uh, this sermon and I think the season of Lent, uh, it's an opportunity to focus on the ways that we fall short. And I know we want to be positive. We want to have hope. Uh, Part of that process, though, is being honest uh, with the ways that uh, we are not as living into the ideal as we want to be, as we claim to be. And so I think this sermon may hit some of you uh, as a bit of a reprimand, uh, but it's also on the flip side of that, an opportunity uh, to grow and um, shedding light is a part of that. But I don't want to shed just a light. I want to talk about a different kind of light from Matthew. I've always been an evangelist myself, personally. I uh, remember that I first got onto the idea of owning a car. uh, And I did a bunch of research. And I realized that I want and need an all-wheel drive car. And then as I went further down that road, I discovered Subarus. I loved my first Subaru. It was a green Subaru Outback wagon. And I told everyone about it. You could not shut me up about it. And before long, a lot of my friends owned Subarus. It's just the way it worked. My dad had one. My uh, associate pastor had one. And then I myself now have had five Subarus over these years. And I still have one to this day. I just love so many things come together in the Subaru. And it's not that Subaru pays me, obviously. They don't pay me to talk about Subarus. Uh, But if I believe in something, if something is good, if something is something of a lifeline or a solution to a problem that I know I and others are experiencing, how are you going to shut me up about that? I'm going to tell you it's part of my love language. That's who I am. I have an evangelistic instinct that gets triggered and i think that's how we all are if we believe in something we will find some way to talk about it almost like a political talking point right Uh, i think jesus was also an evangelist he talked about the love of god but in such an attractive and different way such in a way that just rang true to people it was like living water and because of sort of the power and the truthfulness and the universality of his message, Jesus was able to command a broad spectrum of people, unlike any evangelist. You know, I tried my best with the whole Subaru thing, but it, hit, it reached its limits. And I haven't sold anybody on Subarus in this church, for example. But Jesus was able to command such a broad spectrum of people. And, you know, the way that we sort of gather together, uh, it's called the homogenous unit principle or growth principle. Like attracts like. And so some say that the church hour, 11 o'clock church hour, is the most segregated hour in America. You know, in no other hour during the week are people so separated into like kinds. Here we are. Uh, as a church, though, we claim to follow Christ, and we see such a difference. Jesus, for example, he was really attractive to young people and older people. In fact, there was a competition between them, and at some point, Jesus had to ask the older people to make way for the younger people that wanted to be with him. He was that effective. He was that uh, flexible in the way he was able to connect with people. He was really effective with people who are sick and people who are healthy, people who are lost, people who are found. He was really effective with men. He was also really effective with women. That was quite rare in those days. He was really effective with rich people. In fact, somebody loved him so much that they donated thousands of dollars by way of a grave to to bury Jesus, his own grave, something expensive, hewn into a stone, right, right? And he was really attractive to poor people. He was definitely uh, a Jew and effective with Jews in the like-kind kind kind of way. But he was also really effective with Gentiles and with Romans and people high in authority and people low in authority. People who are religious, people who are weak, people who are powerful. In other words, another way to say this is that he was a different kind of light. Light is attractive, and light existed in Jesus' time. But Jesus' light was different from the religious light that was shining at the time. He was different from the powerful light that was shining at the time. He was his own brand of light. And everywhere he went, he had this effect. He triggered an evangelistic instinct in people. You know, so for example, the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan woman. And it's not like Jesus was super nice to her. He rebuked her. He confronted her about the ways that she had fallen short. He confronted her about the five divorces that she had had and the six men that she was living with, unmarried to at the time. And she experienced this interaction as so life-giving, as living water, as the passage says, that she runs over to her village and she tells everyone about it and they all convert to Christ. And not only with people, even demons. Jesus had to command the demons to shut up about him. Because even they were excited about who Jesus was. I mean, for the wrong reasons, but they were excited about who Jesus was. And so the command went to stay quiet. My speech, you know, uh, I have a long history with church planting and with church planters. And I'm engaged in work with church planters even to this day. And my speech has remained the same. I always say this. I say, if people experience your uh, gathering, your barbecues, and your vision casting, and your preaching in such a way that it triggers the evangelistic instinct, and while they're experiencing you listening to you, they have this thought like, oh, I wish John was here. Oh, I'm going to make sure John gets this sermon or something. And then John listens to it, and he goes, oh, this is really good. I'm going to tell Mary about it. I say, if you have three generations of people that want to tell people, other people, about the work that God's doing through you, then you're probably established as a church, and you're going to succeed. Because now, once it's sort of uh, tri-layered, then, and I think only then, it sort of begins to take on a life of its own. Becomes a church. There's a a birth story. Giving birth to something that's alive. And so I say, are you able to do this kind of gathering work? Where it's not just you telling people. But the people you tell want to tell. And then those people want to tell also. And I think that's our speech. That's my speech to all of us today as a church. Are we the kind of church... That's different. Do people experience our church in such a way that it activates their evangelistic instinct? It's not because I tell you, please invite a friend. But you're going, oh, I wish John was here. Oh, I'm going to give Mary this sermon, or I'm going to make sure that we listen. Does that happen? What is it about our church that's a different light? And I think this is a really relevant question Because this is the way Jesus' ministry was. He commanded this broad spectrum of people. There was something so true and so universal and so powerful, so right, so good about the nature of Jesus' light. That all different kinds of people came. And he was able to overcome the natural, normal, human ways of growing. So we have this passage today, verse 14 to 16. I want to read it for us again with the highlights there. Jesus speaking to his disciples on a hillside. This is famously called the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. First, notice, Jesus is describing the nature of light. In this case, light coming from a city. He says, a city on a hill, by design, by nature, by definition, by virtue of the fact that it's on a hill, it can't be hidden. And nobody says, I want to build a hidden city and builds it on a hill. I just finished re-watching the Matrix series. I finally understand the movie now. It's such a good movie. It's so interesting. But remember, there, if you remember the movie, there was a city. They wanted to stay secret because they wanted to hide from the machines. So they built the city underground close to the Earth's core so they can stay hidden. That was the whole point of it, Right? But a city set on a hill, by definition, cannot be hidden. It's visible. It's like driving from L.A. to Vegas. You see the city from a far away because it's all lit up. Right? Likewise, a lamp under a basket. By intent, if you light a lamp, you don't light it so that you can hide it. If you light something, it's so that the light can be visible or create warmth. The point is, you don't create a barrier around the light. You don't insulate the light. Because the intent of lighting it was to let it shine. By nature, you would not do that. And that is the nature of light. It's not meant to be hidden. And we see here in this passage that the light, The need for light is so universal in the way that it meets human need. You know, nobody ever says, I don't need the sun. I hope the sun disappears tomorrow. Because we know, we Seattleites of all people know how good it feels, right, to have the light on us, to have the light on our face, to feel the warmth of it, to feel the brightness of it, to feel our body just being restored by it. There's a kind of universal uh, value to light that it's profitable and relevant to all people in the house. That's what verse 15 says, to all who are in the house. It's like air, it's like water, it's like sustenance. We need light. And because of the universal nature of it, it triggers The evangelistic instinct. We want to share the light with all who are in the house. I found light. Come. See. Feel. Be blanketed by it. Absorb it. Take it in. And Jesus says, people then will glorify God. God, thank you for this light. This light is so good. Now, think about this. Do people experience the church and go, oh, I need it? This is so much. This is so good. I don't know if I believe in God, but God, I thank you for the church. Do you believe that our culture feels this way about the church? Do you think Mercer Island folks, people on the east side, people on the west side, do they feel this way about Evergreen Covenant Church? Do they feel this way about your brand of Christianity, about the kind of light that emanates from you? Is this their natural reaction to you? And notice also, I always thought it was my works. You know, if I have good works, the works themselves testify to God. That's not what Jesus says. Now understand why it's never by our works we are saved. It's not by my works that you are saved either. Neither I nor you are saved by works. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in what? In such a way That they may see your good works and glorify your Father. That is to say, it's not about the works. The works themselves do not shine light. That's like saying the moon is a, a star. It's not. But the moon is illuminated by the sun in such a way that we look up and we are tempted to worship it. Right? It's our works illuminated in such a way that causes people to glorify God. That means it's possible for our works to be illuminated in such a way that it just gives glory to man. That your works are about you. That it's about your resume. You lead with your resume. You find ways to drop in all your your accomplishments. I'm so good at this. But there is a way to illuminate your works in such a way that people naturally give glory to God. Why is the reaction to the church, to religion, to Christians, so different today? Three really uh, just, there's, there's so many, but I picked three, politics. Think about the way the Christian faith in America has been usurped by political ends. Think about the way people talk about their base. Do you believe that all Christians should belong in one Christian party? The world sees this. Our culture observes the way Christianity is being cast, the kind of light that's shining on the political body of work, and they are not giving glory to God. They are not drawn to it. It's not drawing a broad spectrum of people. That's one category. Another one, think about all of the scandals that Christians are at the center of. We just read recently that one of the number two people that report to the Pope himself in the Catholic Church has been convicted of years, of decades of abuse. He's in jail. Reports to the Pope himself. It's not just the bishops out there in Boston or elsewhere. It has infiltrated the entire Catholic Church, top to bottom. And I really, as as a Protestant... I thought, at least I'm not Catholic, you know? And then recently, have you read about the Southern Baptist Convention? The decades and decades of abuse and all the ways that they have shed darkness on it rather than light. It's everyone. And it's not that that's worse than secular organizations, but that that's the same response to power that all human beings have. All power wants is more power, and all power needs is more darkness. It's not that Christians are worse. It's that they're the same. We are scandal-ridden like everybody else, and this is not the kind of light. These aren't even the kind of works that cause people to want to tell others or bring glory to God at all. Paul talks about, in fact, God's name is defamed because of you. And that's exactly what's happening. Okay, fine. Those are politics. Those are big organizations. But what about you, the single Christian? Are you any different? The Christians I know, and I put myself on the top of this list, I am so consumeristic, just like all my peers. I can't even remember the last day that an Amazon box didn't show up on my door. I feel literally, I'm so embarrassed. One of my kids loves boxes and gets so excited every time a box comes. She's always building something. She's going, that's exactly the box size I needed. Thank you, Dad. She thanks me every day. (laughs) And I'm hypocritical just like everybody else. It's not that Christians are more hypocritical. It's just that we're the same hypocritical. And I'm selfish. It's not that we are more selfish. We're just the same selfish. It's not a different light. I think we all stand under indictment in this room, individually and collectively. And because of how dark we are, we have a propensity to shine the light rather than letting the light shine. The difference between these two is the difference between life and death. If you shine your light, you're a police officer and you pull somebody over just now. And and you're shining your bright mag light into the eyes of somebody sitting in the driver's seat as... And the strategy in police training is to debilitate the passenger, to debilitate the driver, so they don't attack. That's obnoxious. That's that's a way to shine light. That's what how the world experiences Christians who shine their light. And the reason Christians shine their light is because we know our light isn't shining. It is the nature of light to shine. If you have to shine your light, you're compensating for the fact that your so-called light isn't light at all. Jesus laments in chapter 6, just one chapter later, he says, If what you claim to be light in you is darkness, how dark is your darkness then? We claim to have light, but Jesus says, that's dark. If you call that light, then it's that dark. How dark is a thing you call dark? I told you, it's going to be a little bit of a rebuke. And so I think we have no business shining light in any which way ever. Because it is the nature of light to shine. If people see light, they're not going to put a cover over it. They're going to want to set it up for all in the room to benefit from the light because the light itself, by definition, is a universal relevant need of the human being. We all need and want light. And if you claim to have light, simply let it do its work. And don't get in its way. Shining is compensation at best. Well, What does it mean? What is this in such a way? And I think, you know, I'm not going to go deep into this part, but if you go up a few verses, this is the kind of light that illuminates the work in such a way that it causes people to glorify God. You have to be poor in spirit. I'm not poor in spirit. You have to be a mourner. I'm not a mourner, though I'm crying more than I used to. Blessed are the meek. Meek means that you are restrained. That you have power under restraint. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst; I hunger and thirst, but it's for wealth, power, and recognition. That's my deal, personally. What's your hungering and thirsting about? Is it for righteousness? What about merciful? What about people who need forgiveness? Do they come to you? Are they scared of you? I think people are scared of me. That's that's a true confession. People know I'm going to deconstruct their sin and list out all the multiple layers of the sin in which uh, ways that they have sinned against me. And they fear coming to me with a confession because they're going to feel worse, not better. Blessed are the pure in heart. I have motives for my motives, which also have their own motives. I am many layers complicated. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so regardless of the deep or shallow way I understand the Sermon on the Mount, I fall short and my light is not such as it should be. And so part of the call is to be a church that has both works and light. But I think there's another way to think about it. I think maybe this equation is a little bit better. Oops. Sorry, air plays a little slow. Okay. <sighs> it's we have to have works and then if we can be in such a way then it equates to being a light that shines all on its own that causes people to glorify God. Where communities experience the existence of our church as a value add you know we're not just not paying taxes but there's something so profitable and valuable about our very existence they want us to exist they need us to exist and they tell others about our existence because in it somehow is a kind of light that is so universally needed and relevant that they want to Make sure all people in the house profit from it. So uh, I want to end with an application here. And the way I divided it up is me and then you. It doesn't mean that I'm not you and you're not me. I speak on our behalf, right? And so we are one in that way. We are all God's kids. But um, just the way to apply it, this is part of my role in the church as uh, the primary storyteller primary uh, tribal storyteller here. Uh, Number one uh, is that I think God has called me to speak the language of integrated thinking. What I mean by that is our Seattle land area is the single most educated spot in the whole United States. We have the highest percentage of post-grad degrees in the nation. I lived in Boston for seven years, and it's the uh, college mecca of the world. There's no other city with more colleges in concentration than the city of Boston, and yet Seattle has more educated people than Boston. Think about that. Right? Right? And so the people that come to our church speak a different language. They are reading lots of different things. And they don't know what to do with a church that's dichotomizing the faith. They, I think God's called me to approach, to speak the language of the culture, to illuminate the gospel truths of scripture. And so I work really hard and deliberately to speak the language of faith and integrate it with the language of science. I want to feel connected to the culture as a way to help the culture connect to Christ. That's part of what God's called me to do. And I want to get a little bit uh, defensive here and explain uh, apologetics about the way I preach. Uh, I want you to know that's super, uh, there's a po- that's a point of awareness on my part. And one of the criticisms or feedback that I get often uh, is, Peter, you know, you don't sound like other preachers. Uh, you seem to stray from the Bible quite a bit, and you can get very excited about a physics principle. One person said, I'm really tired of you talking about the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> and I know. I said, second law dictates that we get tired. We don't get more energized. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say that. But I said, you know, uh, if you tally up the biblical principles that I'm illustrating using uh, integrating language. And then if you tally up a typical preacher and the biblical principles that they're talking about, I would bet that my percentage of talking about biblical truths is higher than the person that you believe is more biblical. In fact, I believe I'm being more biblical by presenting corroborating evidence from all the disciplines of thought in our world so that you can understand the gospel in a fresh way. That's my defense. And as part of that language, I really think uh, the universal language of all people is authenticity. And if I can be vulnerable, if I can be transparent, if I can talk about the ways that I fall short, not 10 years ago, but 10 minutes ago, then I think it reaches people in a way that uh, sort of uh, a person on a, you know, on a podium, on a platform, you know, feels too arrived and too distant. And so I try to speak that language as much as possible. And I remember the moment that I thought as I was planting a church in Boston, and I realized that every time if I talk about a missionary who did amazing things, it may be inspiring for the moment, but ultimately I can't relate to that person. And so I said to myself, I'm going to try to illustrate the gospel from my failed life as much as possible. And I made that decision. And so that's number one for me, integrating and authentic thinking. Uh, Number two for me is I work hard. I want you to know to not tell you stuff but to show you stuff so that you can decide for yourself if something is true or not. It's part of the reason why I try to present corroborating evidence so that you can see all the ways that various disciplines point to the same truth. And you can say, oh, Maybe it is true and you can own that piece of the truth rather than feeling like there's no room for you and all you can do is just agree with me. And then third, for me, it's really, really important that you understand that we are a Christian church and not a synagogue. And what I mean by that is a synagogue is filled with wisdom, even divine wisdom. But Jesus on the road to Emmaus, talking to two disappointed disciples, he said, I want to show you from the scriptures why the son of man had to suffer and die. That there was a necessity to the suffering and the death of Christ. And why he had to rise again from the dead in three days. That means that all truth, it's at best, Penultimate. There's a final piece to that truth that's going to unlock the life out of it. Otherwise, it eventually leads to death because any principle or truth or wisdom you put into my hands, I will pervert it and twist it and incorporate it into my wicked human nature and I will ruin it. So, for example, you know, I go to yoga, right? And I hear the principle about meditation. Everybody's talking about a meditation and awareness. It's just everywhere. But I always do translation work. I think, can meditation save me? What if I became the world's greatest meditator? What if I was the most aware person on the planet? Then do I not need Christ? What is it about Jesus' suffering and death that completes the truth about meditation that gives me life? What is it? I have to wrestle with that. That's part of my working out my salvation with fear and trembling because I know ultimately all truths point to Christ. And Christ is the completion of all other truths out there because he is the truth. He is not a truth. And so as a Christian church, we have to always ask, well, why did Jesus have to die for that? That's the final question we have to always ask and answer because we are not a synagogue we are a christian church we are not a humanitarian organization we're not just a 501c3 we are a christian church why a church always defending ourselves through the suffering and the death and resurrection of christ now your turn how can you be a different kind of light how can you be a church number one for such a time as this, I think you have to figure out as a church and as, in, as individuals how to love unlovable people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, uh, in this chapter or the next one, he says, What credit is it to you if you love people who love you? If you loan money to people who will pay you back? What credit is it to you? How will they glorify God if your love is of human origin? If your love makes sense? If your love seems like the natural, normal response, like you love your own kids, you don't get credit for that. That's your job. If you don't do it, you go to jail. (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes. And so I don't know who your unlovable people are. Make a list. You know the typical ones, the usual suspects that I could name, but you name it. Who are the people that you just can't even stomach? Or people you just want to slightly reject? Or people you just feel you're better than? You know, if somebody, if you weren't a Christian and you believe that you're going to be fine, say, well, why are you a good person? Well, I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person because because what? You haven't what? You haven't murdered anyone. You haven't what? Those people, how will you love those people? If you don't figure out a way to love them, it's just you. There's no light of Christ in you. There's no love of Christ flowing through you. Number two, our culture right now is just a first space or a second space. A first space is where everybody has to have the same opinion. That's where we're leaning towards right now as a culture Nobody can talk anymore. Nobody can publish. Nobody can write. Everybody's issuing apologies. Everybody's getting fired and nobody's getting hired because we're all scared to death. We are living in anxious times. And the most intolerant people are the tolerance police people. Everything has to be politically uber correct in such a way that you are scared to speak. It's a first space where there's only one opinion allowed and nobody else gets to have any other opinion. That's one alternative. The other alternative is nobody gets to say anything. We're just going to be nice to each other. That's sort of our church's history. That's what Scandinavians are. And that's why Seattle is defined by Scandinavian culture. We're friendly, we're passive-aggressive, we're introverted, we're nosy but not overtly. We wave at each other. We say hi, but we don't actually hang out. When I say we should get together, I don't mean it. You know, you know all the stereotypes. It's all true. You know, we're so, like, non-confrontational. We don't even know how to merge into lanes correctly. If that's not evidence enough, see, corroborating evidence using traffic flow patterns. We have an opportunity in our culture right now to be a third space where people can come as they are, speak their mind, but stay at the table and figure out that it's about people and it's about the relationship more than anything else. We can do that. We can grow together. Iron sharpening iron. Truth is not a line you cross, but it's a road you take. We can take that road together. We can be that church. That's different. That's going to illuminate our works in such a way. And then third, everybody say this with me. Out the way. way. Louder. Out the way. Get out the way. I would love for non-Christians to stumble on Christ, not on Christians. I think most people who think they're rejecting Christ, they're actually just stumbling on Christians and rejecting Christianity. They've never even experienced Jesus themselves. They're not tasting of his goodness. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. They have never tasted of him. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting you. They're rejecting us. So figure out ways to get out the way. Your language, your ethos, your presuppositions, your mannerisms, your failed character traits, your consumerism, your hypocrisy, your Christianese, your way of being a church, get out the way so that people can experience Christ unhindered. How do you do that? That's our job to figure it out. How can we be the kind of church that would cause people to want to come here and then tell others because the light that shines from us is light indeed? Would you bow your heads with me? God, we received this reprimand today we receive this rebuke from you. We receive this exhortation. We believe uh, that there is a pathway to hope here as individuals and as a church. I don't know how it's all going to hammer out, but I believe that if we can walk this road and have this intent and have this purpose together as a church, that our church will naturally grow because of the attractive nature of true light. It's so different. Help us to be different in such a time as this, that all people may glorify our Father who is in heaven. Help us to repent of our ways and to be your ambassadors as you have called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.